Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. With us, we have Naomi Seidman, Chancellor Jackman Professor in the Arts at the University of Toronto. She's here to talk to us about her new book, The Marriage Plot, or How Jews Fell in Love with Love and with Literature, published in 2016 by Stanford University Press. Naomi, thanks very much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. So first question, how did you come to write this book? I'm actually trying to remember. I was writing it for so many years. I actually started writing it, I think, during the heyday of queer studies and Jewish studies, and I thought I was writing a queer studies book. And um, I thought I was writing about the odd um, prevalence of, let's say, queer themes in Hebrew, especially Yiddish literature. And um, two things happened. That whole wave of books somehow, this great excitement about looking at Jewish studies through the lens of queer studies, somehow it got, it was very exciting, then it got very repetitive, and then it kind of hit a blind alley. And the fact that my book still wasn't done, and it also seemed as if the queer studies lens wasn't taking enough into account. Um, It wasn't taking heteronormativity into account, for instance. Um, And I somehow had to expand the lens to try to understand the Ashkenazic cultural system as a whole um, and stop privileging those moments when the joke was two boys getting married to each other or people cross-dressing. So um, exactly how I started writing it, I don't remember, but I know there was a dramatic shift. And once I realized that that wasn't exactly the book I was writing, suddenly it all kind of came into focus for me. and I was able to to break the block. So um, we'll start getting into the um, substance of the book. Um, you start with telling us about um, the beginnings of Hebrew and Yiddish romantic literature in the 19th century. Can you tell us a bit about this? So there's there are a number of beginnings, but the one that I focused on the most was the um, a book called Avatzion that was published in, I believe, 1853 by Avraham Mapu. Um, in English, that title is The Love of Zion, which created a sensation. It was a, a very long novel written in almost, to, to modern Israeli ears, almost unreadable biblical prose, actually um, biblical Hebrew, that of a love story that took place at the time of um, the prophet Isaiah. 
and it took the Jewish world by storm. Um, and I start by talking about just how suddenly uh, everybody got very interested in the romantic novel. And for many people, it actually transformed their lives. Uh, I describe the moment in which people started reading these romantic novels in numerous autobiographies. People talked about it. For lots of people, it basically propelled them to secularize. And I was very interested in what it could mean that an entire culture could be so transformed by a novel um, that these young people started reading and falling in love with. Maybe you could tell us a bit about um, sort of the scope of your book and what periods it covers. And then in Chapter 2, you really start to talk about particular themes and figures um, within this literature. Um, So if you could tell us a bit about the figure of the matchmaker um, in Jewish literature and how representations of this figure have changed over time. Yeah, I guess I would say that just to say what my book turned out to be about is that it turned out to be about uh, the, the movement from traditional arranged marriage to modern bourgeois marriage, uh, love matches, and let's say halfway back again. So every chapter deals with a different aspect, especially starting from chapter two, a different aspect of traditional marriage. So I have a a chapter on, um, or traditional Jewish society. I have a chapter on the matchmaker. I have a chapter on the role of pedigree or youthus in traditional marriage, a chapter on gender roles and the age of marriage um, and a chapter on sexual segregation. And each chapter follows a certain pattern, which is that I begin by describing how for lots of people suddenly and traumatically, they were introduced to a new way of doing business, doing business romantically and how young people threw over the old ways and through literature, basically, um, decided to uh, embrace new models of love and romance. And I trace the way in which, taking the example of the matchmaker, which you asked about, I trace the ways in which that first generation in the mid-19th century wrote literature and autobiography that basically excoriated traditional figures like the matchmaker and talked about how the system of arranged marriage was mercenary and cold and paid no attention to the desires of the young. Um, Every chapter begins with that description of the overthrow of these traditional practices. Um, And the second part of every chapter, every chapter has three parts. The second part describes how these traditional practices during a second generation of literary production during the modernist period began to be seen in more sympathetic light. So for instance, to take the example again of the, of let's say arranged marriage, while the Haskalah novel or the Haskalah autobiography, the enlightenment autobiography in the 19th century universally condemned the matchmaker and condemned the practice of matchmaking in, and in, arranged marriage more particularly, um, during the modernist period, and the most famous example is the Dibbuk, the practice of arranged marriage 
either with a matchmaker or with um, parents arranging a match for the children, began to take on a new meaning in which it meant something like, um, and writers began to recover this notion of fate, that God himself was a matchmaker who arranged marriages, and that to have an arranged marriage was in some way to be fulfilling a kind of uh, the hand of fate. And uh, some of the modernist plays and novels and films um, recovered the figure of the matchmaker, at least saw him as a character and saw him as um, uh, himself filled with kind of erotic interest. And the example, the, the third uh, part of the chapter on the matchmaker um, is about how in uh, American literature, after the Holocaust, there was a kind of new interest in traditional practices. And the matchmaker again was revived um, and became part of uh, Jewish literature in a new way. And the example I use there is The Magic Barrel by Bernard Malamud, in which the matchmaker, uh, in which a, a man looking for a match um, meets the woman he falls in love with through a matchmaker. So it, in some sense, the, 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 the new story of the importance of erotic love and sexual attraction in uh, contracting a marriage is somehow combined with the figure of the matchmaker or the traditional way of arranging marriage. And I think I try to show that the same pattern of somehow combining the modern ideology of the free choice of the right of young people to freely choose a mate and some of those traditional practices find a kind of combined uh, fulfillment in, um, in modern Jewish literature. So that Jews be become a kind of, um, Jews work out the relationship between the new ideology of modern romance and the old traditional practices and try to find distinctive patterns uh, rooted in Jewish tradition for understanding what erotic choice is. So uh, in the next chapter, as you mentioned, you looked at the role of family lineage and pedigree. Can you tell us yeah. a bit about this? Yeah, well, that's the chapter. I think I talk about uh, Tavia the Dairyman and Fiddler on the Roof there. So pedigree, too, was understood to be um, a completely external way to arrange marriages. It was uh, the matchmaker would come to matchmakers, actually. I think we have uh, misunderstood what traditional matchmaking was because of the way it's been portrayed in, among other places, Fiddler on the Roof. But um, generally, traditionally, there would be two matchmakers who would uh, get together and they would weigh the various market value of the prospective bride and the prospective groom. And that market value was comprised of uh, both wealth and property and um, the pedigree of the families that they came from. And in the case of the, the groom, the Torah learning that he had. Um, this particular practice or traditional practice was criticized by the first generation of modernizers um, with the idea that the pedigree was the least relevant way of contracting a marriage. One of the things I argue is that 
tell you that the, the dairyman has been completely misunderstood as part of that particular um, critical critique of traditional marriage, that the daughters being able to choose their own mates as opposed to uh, listening to whoever the matchmaker um, thought was a, a, a suitable match for them was how um, is how Fiddler on the Roof is seen. It's seen as part of the critique of traditional marriage and the critique of pedigree. But in a certain way, like the Dibbuk, the importance of family pedigree um, is actually affirmed in a very indirect way in Tevi the Dairyman and also in Fiddler on the Roof. And this is a good example of something to talk about because so many people know Fiddler on the Roof. Um, if you remember the way in which Tevya persuades his wife Golda to allow his oldest daughter Zeitel to marry the man she wants to marry is by telling Golda a story about a dream he had that his uh, that her grandmother her grand her grandmother Zeitel, in other words, the bride's great grandmother had come back from the dead to say that this boy that Saito wants to marry, Muttel, is actually a longtime family acquaintance. In other words, this woman provides a kind of genealogy, this woman, this dead woman who's invented by Tevya, um, comes back from the past to affirm that the man that Saito fell in love with is actually actually has a kind of pedigree that's known to Saitel's family. So this is something that Tevye invents, invents. We don't know that it's true, but it's an example, like the Dibuk, of this kind of mixed case in which a love match is also also turns out to be a family connection, and that the importance of pedigree and the importance of erotic connection are somehow affirmed at the very same time in modern Jewish literature. And one of the things that I asked is, why is it that this particular twist is so common in Jewish literature? Imagine if um, Romeo and Juliet turned out to be from families, turned out to be a couple that not only were marrying against the desires of their parents, but that somehow also were marrying because their ancestors had promised them to each other before they were born. This is a kind of plot twist that seems to be everywhere in Jewish literature. It's in that first book that I mentioned. It's in The Love of Zion. It's in the Dibbuk, which is the most famous play, a uh, uh, Yiddish play. It's in Tevye the Dairyman, which is, let's, you know, as one of the most famous short story collections, and as Fiddler on the Roof really stands in for the Jewish approach to marriage. So why is it that there's this very odd plot twist where Jewish writers seem to want it both ways? They want to say what's really important is the mad love of young people, and somehow that mad love of young people which is in most of Western literature understood to be an absolute contradiction to the desires of their elders, in Jewish literature is both in the in absolute contradiction of the desires of their elders 
and nevertheless, because of certain plot twists, turns out also to be an expression of the desires of their elders. And how it is that it can be both, um, that's what these complicated plots are all trying to work out. So um, one of the things I was asking is, is, is why this double plot, um, this double plot of critique and recovery of traditional Jewish marriage? And one of the one of the ways that I explain it is that traditional Jewish uh, erotic practices and ways of of, of arranging marriage um, gave way to the modern sex religion, the idea that the most important relationship is not with your Jewish family, but with the man you want to uh, marry or the woman you want to marry. Um, that that particular religion is based on a certain kind of um, secularization of Christian practices. And because Jews didn't share this Christian prehistory, they they always kept a certain critical edge about um, the sex religion, as Ian Watt calls it. They didn't entirely 100% embrace the idea that the most important relationship you will ever have in your life is with the, the person you fall in love with when you're uh, 18 years old and that your parents don't matter, your children don't matter, extended family doesn't matter, community doesn't matter. Um, this relationship is, is the only one that matters. And I would say that Jewish writers expressed a certain kind of heretical distance from the sex religion and, the, um, and thus... Uh, created a literature that stood slightly outside of that. Um, the main arc of the book argues that the Jewish heretical critique of the sex religion through texts like uh, Fiddler on the Roof and through writers in, like Philip Roth and Sigmund Freud eventually became the dominant ideology about love and sex in the West. So in the next chapter, you look at the role of literature in constructing a modern Jewish ideology of heterosexual romance. So you assess this through the concepts of romantic time and gender complementarity. Can you tell us a mm -hmm. bit about this? So one of the great features of um, the modernization of marriage, which happened in all traditional cultures in the West and after that in all parts of the world, it's still happening in many parts of the world, is based on, let's say, two distinctive features. And it emerges from a particular set of economic conditions that uh, are the kind of economic substructure for this uh, for this ideology. One aspect of this ideology is that marriage should be a free contract between two individuals based on their love for each other, not on economic considerations, not on family considerations, and that the young couple should set up their own house apart from their families. That's one basic element of it, and it comes out of... Uh, the Industrial Revolution, urbanization, various other 
basically socioeconomic factors. The other part of this, which are also based on socioeconomic factors, are that a marriage is contracted by a man and a woman who each fulfill very different but complementary roles. Um, the woman is a housewife. The man goes out and works. Of course, this isn't something that all cultures can um, participate and all classes can participate in. But the novel instructs readers on what it means to create a marriage, that it means not only that it's young people choosing each other, but also these are young people playing out very distinct roles in which, for instance, it's the man that supposedly makes the first move, that is supposed to make the first move. One of the things that's taught by the novel is the choreography of courtship. That's the title of my third chapter or fourth chapter. Um, how exactly it is that a young man, a young woman might meet and, and who uh, looks at who and all these different games that are played, all these things have to be taught. Um, my argument is that Jews, because they lacked a kind of uh, this particular kind of gender ideology. Um, so in the Christian, the Roman Christian Western Gentile uh, system, the the um, assertiveness and even uh, romantic aggression of the man um, has a long prehistory um, that that doesn't exist within traditional Ashkenazic culture, which doesn't see men as more physically powerful than women, um, but or and doesn't see women as fainting, delicate, uh, beautiful, doesn't even have an ideology that it's the woman that's supposed to be beautiful and the man that's supposed to be strong. And because this, because the the modern ideology of um, of sex and romance and marriage derives from, um, let's say, telling this history very quickly, from the Christian worship of the Virgin Mary, uh, which then gets secularized as uh, lightly as a chivalric romance and then gets democratized to include all women or at least all women, uh, all middle-class women, um, sometime in the 18th century in England and thereafter in other European countries, that particular history and the economic conditions that produce the luxury of having a woman sit in the house as opposed to in the marketplace the way it was typical in Eastern Europe, um, Jews it took on this particular ideology with a difference. They were never particularly good at it. They thought it was slightly ridiculous. Um, I have all these, uh, I quote all these autobiographies of uh, basically Jewish writers saying, what do we know about this, this way of being a woman or this way of being a man? How did we even know women? How did we know uh, what we were supposed to be as men? We were trained to sit and learn. Um, and because Jews weren't, there wasn't the, uh, a, a, a deep cultural background to the adoption of these uh, of this of this ideology of gender complementarity, Jews basically took it on with a certain kind of distance, a certain kind of irony, and developed a, a series of jokes that initially were supposed to shame Jews into learning how to be. Um, better at 
being European men and European women, being delicate if they were women, being strong if they were men. Um, but for, because this shaming, I think originally a lot of these satires on how Jews perform gender wrong, um, because they were so entertaining and so funny, and they were so much better than the more straightforward romantic novels, which were so unrealistic, they ended up being much more successful. And they ended up creating their own kind of Jewish pride in Jewish difference. And um, basically the, the, the series of kind of queer performances and queer um, cross-dressed women and two men uh, running off together, but pretending that they're somehow along the model of a man and a woman run, uh, running off together. The, uh, all, these, all these jokes about how Jews can't do gender and romance right, um, they had a, a kind of self-propelling success um, that I trace basically all the way from the late 19th century to Woody Allen, um, in which the what starts as embarrassment that Jews are terrible at duels and don't know how to dance in balls ends up being a certain kind of pride. I actually trace it to one particular novel, which was called The Jewish Don Quixote, um, The Travels of Benjamin III, um, which was a kind of Jew Jewish satire on Don Quixote. Instead of uh, uh, two men going off looking for women uh, to romance, it's two men running away from their wives because where would you find a single Jewish man in Eastern Europe? They're all married by the time they're, they're you know, 15 years old. Um, and the novel starts off making fun of these two men, one of which is one of whom is called Sendral the Sendral the Yidna, Sendral the Jewess. Um, but who, and it continues to make fun of them till they're drafting drafted into the Tsarist army. But then they actually the the novel turns and starts sympathizing with them. It turns out that the Enlightenment novelist is starting to think. Maybe it's not so great being a czarist soldier. Maybe there's something right about the Jewish unwillingness to fight. Um, and basically what you get is a, a counter-narrative counter to the Western discourse about masculinity that, that goes back to prizing certain aspects of Jewish masculinity. So that's how I uh, certain traditional aspects of Jewish masculinity, including gentleness and and the prizing of intellectual activities, things that had been denigrated in other forms of romantic fiction. So you then go on to look at the process of um, family nuclearization. Tell us about this and the persistence of alternate models of Jewish kinship. Uh, in Jewish literature. Yeah, that too. I mean, this is, so some of the things that I've talked about, the importance of pedigree, the role of the matchmaker, um, the, uh, what was the other one? I don't remember. Anyway, the one that is less known is this notion that the family, that the new uh, bride and groom go and live generally with the family of the bride after marriage. This is a practice called kes. And um, Kest was seen as a, like other aspects of, of Jewish marriage, and this one is pretty much forgotten, 
um, that too was was subjected to serious critique by the first generations of modernizing Jewish writers. Um, and that too, in a, a less obvious way, was kind of resurrected um, by later writers. And the writer that I talk about is at the end of that, just to cut to the chase, the recovery of the importance of uh, extended family um, in contemporary America was Grace Paley, who wrote about um, the relationship between an aunt and a niece and uh, brought back uh, into Yiddish into into American literature, the voices not only of an older generation of Yiddish speakers um, in the late fifties, but also um, these surprising connections, these these alternative families that are not simply a nuclear family, and how um, Jews were taught that they needed to uh, they needed to become smaller nuclear families as economic units, as a that there was something about um, the modernization that required um, the independence of the smaller family, that the husband and the wife needed to cut off ties with in-laws, and in-laws were seen as jokes. And there's something about her writing, especially her first short story, that uh, and, and Sol Bellow too, that repopulated the novel and repopulated the short story with uh, larger families than writers like Fitzgerald or Hemingway with their minimalism and their um, sort of American independence um, had tended to do. So there's something about that generation of American-born writers that that uh, gravitated after this kind of minimalist, macho era of writers like T.S. Eliot, uh, Hemingway, and Fitzgerald that brought loud, boisterous Jewish families back to the, the, the page, back to American literature um, in, in novels that expanded to include um, generations and families. Um, and that's one of the things that I, I trace in that chapter. So your last chapter looks at sexual segregation, um, which was at first treated disdainfully by Jewish writers, but then came to represent new erotic pleasures in 20th century Jewish literature. Tell us a bit about this. So one of the things that I try to do um, in, in this book is to try to figure out how to think about Ashkenazi culture holistically um, in a way that I th- thought hadn't entirely been done by um, in, in the queer studies era, in the 90s, when all those books were coming out that were queer studies approaches. So I wanted to figure out a way to understand what traditional Jewish culture was that incorporated its kind of queer gender roles, but also its combination of um, heteronormativity and its... Uh, sexual segregation and its homosociality. And what I came up with was have this somewhat condensed way of describing it, which is that traditional Jewish culture um, was a, was a society in which um, there was a bisexual distribution of erotic energies between two spheres. One sphere was a partially de-eroticized heteronormative sphere. And by partially de-eroticized 
heteronormativity, I mean, everyone's supposed to get married, but that the way in which ma- uh, marriages are con- contracted is de-eroticized in the sense that marriages are not necessarily based on erotic attraction, at least not at the outset. Um, that particular sphere, the erotic sphere, the partially de-eroticized heteronormative sphere, is combined in traditional Jewish societies with a <coughs> partially eroticized homosocial sphere. So a uh, a sphere, by homosocial, I mean a sphere of same-sex community in which young boys, young girls, but more particularly young boys, are spending a lot of time together. And these spheres, what I mean is the yeshiva, the Hasidic courts, um, the mikvah, all these places, the shul, the shtibel, etc. These places are places of intense erotic energy, um, and these two spheres are operative for everyone so that everyone participates both in an eroticized homosocial sphere and in a de-eroticized heteronormative sphere. So people are married, but they don't invest all their erotic energies into their marriages. They also have these other very powerful same-sex relationships. Um, what's happened with modernization is that for modernizing Jews, for secularizing Jews, all their erotic eggs got put into one basket, generally heterosexual. So you needed your marriage to be everything. Um, It's not that different for people who are gay and who put all their erotic eggs into their gay relationships. Um, That particular um, traditional society Let's just say that the traditional society, the way it was done in traditional society, was actually a way of building not only relationships, but also community. Um, and one of the things that that was sacrificed to the modern sex religion, the idea that your erotic relationship is the most important thing in your life, is this other dimension that everyone shared, which is the connection to community normally through same-sex and sexually segregated um, uh social groupings. What I argued is that after a period of embrace, falling in love with love, embrace of the modern ideology of sexual choice, and the embrace of the lollipop of erotic desire and courtship and romance and all that, that people began to really feel the uh, loss of same-sex community. And I don't, and I, I think that that loss of same-sex community traverses sexual orientation. It's felt both by straight and by gay people. And one of the things that happens in this period is this kind of um, ironic twist on between the 19th and the 20th century. So in the 19th century, you get extremely sexually segregated societies in which men in their own groupings and women in their own gr- groupings are reading these these uh, romances and fantasizing that they can live in a society in which men and women, boys and girls, freely mix. That was one of the engines that created sexual modernization. In the 20th century, once this revolution had been accomplished, you get men and women going to the theater on Friday night and there looking at a Hasidic court or a sexually segregated synagogue presented on stage or on the movie screen, and they're filled with nostalgia 
for those particularly sexually segregated um, uh, environments. Um, and they long for a return to this. That's how I read one of the most famous uh, Yiddish short stories written in you know, a, a 20th century example, which is um, Yentl, Yeshiva Boy. My understanding of Yentl's dressing up is not that she's necessarily gay. She's attracted both to the man and to the woman that she uh, meets when she cross-dresses, right? She marries a woman and she also falls in love with her study part partner. Um, if all you're doing is looking at sexual orientation, then you don't understand that what Yentl is about. It's about the it's about wanting both heterosexuality, both the pleasures of heterosexuality, but done without those constricted roles that bourgeois romance imposes on boys and girls, men and women. It's about wanting to have the true camaraderie that's available only in a yeshiva, available only in a Hasidic court, but to have it with someone of the opposite sex. Um, Yentl is a fantasy about achieving that impossible desire in my reading. Brilliant. Well, that's a good note to uh, finish on. Um, thanks very much for giving us uh, that brilliant overview of your book, Naomi. Um, before we let you go, would you be able to tell us a bit about what you're working on next? Yeah, so um, I actually am deep in the, I'm just finishing my second reading of the page proofs of my next book, which is coming out in a few months. And it's called Sarah and Bes Yaakov. Um, a Revolution in the Name of Tradition, and it's about the emergence of Orthodox girls' education in interwar Poland. As opposed to being about secularization, it's about a different kind of revolution, which is about the revolution of, of orthodoxy in uh, recovering from the threat of secularization. So in this book goes back to my, I, my earlier period in my own life, um, I was I went to this school, Besyakov, it's all over. Do you know about Besyakov, Max? Or? No, no, I don't. It's an Orthodox girl, it's an international Orthodox girl system. There are, I'm sure there's one in um, Melbourne. Okay. Um, and uh, I look at the founding of this girl system and um, I'm really excited about my next project. So thank you for asking. And after that, I'm writing a book about Freud and Yiddish. Oh, fantastic. Um, well, they both sound like really excellent projects. Um, and we certainly have hope to have you back on new books in Jewish studies um, to talk about both of those. Um, but thank you very much for uh, talking to us about your book, uh, The Marriage Plot today. So um, just to recap for our listeners, um, we've been talking to Naomi Seidman, Chancellor Jackman Professor in the Arts at the University of Toronto, and she talked to us about her new book, The Marriage Plot, or How Jews Fell in Love with Love and with Literature, published in 2016 by Stanford University Press. Um, thanks very much. Thank you so much for having me.